BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. There was a forced exodus of a lot of very fine public servants. You know, what's done is done. I do have great expectations of Mike Pompeo. Yeah, how do you think he's doing? I think he's, he's setting a tone. He's setting a tone and, and a set of priorities that I think are very sound. Um, I would assume there is, in your view, no walking away from the Middle East by the United States. We have abiding interests there. We have abiding partnerships that are critical to our national security. I think you've got um, some organic issues that are unresolved in the region, to which Iran provides an accelerant. The Iranians, in my view, have not been the source of instability, but they have acted to accelerate and to deepen that instability. Barbara Leaf was a career Foreign Service officer. She served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Arab Emirates from 2014 to 2017, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Arabian Peninsula, and as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Iraq. Among Ambassador Leaf's other assignments were tours leading a provincial reconstruction team in Iraq and serving as the first director of the State Department's Office of Iranian Affairs. She is widely viewed as a Middle East expert and she currently serves as a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Washington Institute. I recently sat down with Barbara to talk about all things Middle East. We will be right back with that conversation after hearing from our sponsor, Raytheon. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Combat proven, platform agnostic, game changing. Raytheon's air dominant solutions drive performance beyond the platform, turning today's aircraft into tomorrow's advantage. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Barbara, it is great to have you on the show, both because of your distinguished career at the State Department, but also because we have many former intelligence officers and even military officers on the show, and I don't feel we have enough diplomats, so it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Michael. It's uh, it's really a treat for me. And uh, I will say I, I'm an avid listener of Intelligence Matters, and I've been very excited about this opportunity to sit down and talk to you. And maybe that's the place to start, Barbara, which is the importance of diplomacy to our national security. I think people can easily conceptualize the importance of military power to national security and even intelligence to national security. But I think they find it harder to do that with regard to diplomacy. 
So how do you talk about the importance of diplomacy? Well, that's a, that is a great uh, set of questions because throughout my career, uh, 33 years in the State Department, all of us were constantly uh, visited with the issue of conveying to the American people what exactly it was that we were doing on their behalf overseas. You have the well-known tropes and cliches about cookie-pushing diplomats at posh European receptions and so forth. And I, I've done my, my share sure of that. reception, so have I. <laughs> I, I. I've done my share of eating for my country, but that by no means is where I feel I, I made a difference. And so conveying to the American people starts with the essentials of what it means to be a public servant overseas, not in uniform, a different kind of uniform. Of course, anywhere I've served, any ambassador I've served under and as an ambassador myself We start with the premise that we are looking out for the welfare of American citizens. When you get that letter from the president, that figures very prominently in the top two or three things that you've got to focus on. And so I did. In every position I encumbered, at some point I was helping an American get out of some scrape or sometimes danger, as I did in the UAE when one of my fellow citizens managed to get himself out of the country, uh, I would say illegally, uh, on a ship that ended up off the coast of southern Yemen, and uh, he got himself into the hands of the Yemeni Coast Guard. And, of course, it was in uh, AQAP territory, Mm. and we had to work out how to get him back and get him back in one piece and so on. So it's looking out for for American citizens. It's looking out for American business. Every place I've served, again, regardless of the position, uh, the role that I had in the mission, we were helping American businessmen and women develop their relationships, develop their entry into the market. And so those two pieces form uh, the bedrock of what we do. But then we look out for all the big national security issues. And so I worked side by side with our folks in uniform in Basra, working on uh, really critical security issues, working on reconstruction and stabilization of a country that, although we had gone in in 2003 with, Iraq, uh, Iraq, in Iraq, with great expectations of what we might achieve, by 2010 it was a very, it was a very tough environment and, and every year before that. So there isn't a simple answer. I refine that message every time I go out to speak to whether it's a university group or a citizens group. And I walk them through, just as a starting point, why the Middle East matters, why it matters to them, whether it's nuclear proliferation or terrorism or all those other things. And then we we go from there. So given the importance, how would you assess the diplomatic capabilities of the United States and how those evolved over time? And I'm in part asking because of Ronan Farrow's Yes. Recent book. I'm sure you're familiar with it. A former State Department official, now New Yorker reporter who wrote a book called War on Peace, right? The End of Diplomacy and where he's quite critical of the failure of successive administrations to invest in diplomacy. Look, we consistently side by side with the difficulty that we have sometimes, uh, not just the Foreign Service, but administrations, uh, secretaries of state and others to, beyond the beltway, explain to the American people what it is we're doing overseas in all these places and why, and why we're putting our people at risk, uh, whether it's in Benghazi or in the far reaches of the Middle East or, or, or Africa. We do consistently, from administration to administration, underinvest 
in the State Department. Now, there are many reasons for that, but I will say it's not because of animosity per se. It is because over time, I think, a, the Department of Defense, as many people have pointed out and people on the Hill will point it out, the Department of Defense has a constituency that is all the members of the Congress because all of them have districts that have some piece of that enterprise there. Either have bases or, the bases companies, or, companies, or companies that sell things to DOD, yeah. right? We are looking outward from the United States, but lo- always looking backward to the homeland. And and again, just as you can't easily quantify our success, uh, you can't put it in metrics. How many demarches did you do? A demarche, of course, as you know, is a instructed piece of guidance from Washington. Go in and tell the host government that you want them to do X, Y, or Z and try to get them to do it. Or stop doing it. Or stop doing it, as the case may be. And so you you don't have easy metrics to judge your success. You can't easily demonstrate how many wars you've averted. You know when you're working on it how close the country comes to that precipice. But every war is not averted by uh, an agreement, uh, you know, something visual. I I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, in George H.W. Bush's administration, we pivoted from a focus on the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, to the spectacle of the Soviet Union disintegrating. And a paramount priority became to get out to all of what we called the, the NIS, the newly independent states, and plant a flag, and literally plant a flag before the Iranians got out there. That was an abiding concern. The race to get a, a physical diplomatic presence out in the field in, in 12 states. And for a variety of reasons, the administration decided not to ask for a supplement to the budget, but to simply take it out of the department side. And, and we got out there and And we set up sort of embassies in a box kind of operations very effectively, got our people out there on terrain. But we we took it out of our hide. And and so we make those decisions. The cost elsewhere as a result of that. Exactly. And so you you meet that cost elsewhere down the line. And so I will just say to round this uh, off this set of comments, I would not say all that notwithstanding that we don't have a a viable diplomatic tool, as it were. It's a tool that's been much battered over the last year and a half, but it is the tool is the people. And notwithstanding the exodus of a lot of people at the top ranks, we have a terrific foreign and civil service in the State Department. So you mentioned, Barbara, you mentioned Secretary Tillerson. Why do you think it was such a miss? Well, that is the $64 question that all of us we're asking ourselves throughout that period and, and afterwards. And nobody, I've, I've met no one in, in the ranks of the service who has been able to answer that. And neither have I. I've, I've talked to people outside government. And, and so what I do know is it was a period, a 15-month month period of extraordinary uh, destructiveness to the ranks of the Foreign Service, but in particular the Senior Foreign Service. And there was a forced exodus of a lot of very fine public servants. You know, what's done is done. I do have great expectations of Mike Pompeo. Yeah, how do you think he's doing? I think he's he's setting a tone uh, and he's setting priorities. If we talk about just the institution, he's setting a tone and, and a set of priorities that I think are very sound. It'll be a long recovery process. That recovery process will extend well beyond his tenure. He's a very capable, adroit uh, spokesman for the policies. 
But as I say, he's done in between, in all of his copious free time, not, between dealing with Russia, NATO, Iran, uh, DPRK, he's spent some time with Foreign Service, the Civil Service, uh, in important ways. He's done tall in the hall meetings when he stopped through on, on important visits overseas. Uh, not every secretary does that, actually. Many of them don't. They don't make that one gesture which kind of tells the troops, hey, you're my troops. You I'm matter. looking out for you. You, you matter. matter. Thank you for what you're doing out here. And he did that on his last couple of trips abroad. And it really, it wasn't just a feel-good exercise. He was conveying a sense that I've got your back. And I will tell you, as a chief of mission, those of us who'd been in the ranks for a couple decades were pretty hard-bitten. It was my entry-level and mid-level officers that I was most concerned about. They felt fairly battered by a number of things going on, and they didn't understand it. And I started getting questions to, you know, to the issue of, should I be looking for another career? Sure. So this was very, he's gotten off to good sc- yeah, so start. Yes, I'm hopeful too. He did very well at CIA. He yeah. relied on the professionals. Yes. He delegated. Yep. Um, he told them to take risks. He told them, I'll have your back, you know, if right. something happens. And he did on several occasions. He got additional resources. There's one story that spread like, and you wouldn't be surprised by this, one story that spread like wildfire. The first week he was there was the week that Trump froze federal hiring. Yes. Mike had his number three call OMB and simply say, we're exempt. And OMB <laughs> said, okay. Um, and, you know, something pretty like gutsy. that. Yeah. Pretty gutsy. Right. And, um, and and I, I, I just feel that if he does the same kind of things at state, he will do exceptionally right. well. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, we don't work in the shadows in the same way that intelligence professionals do. But we do largely work behind the scenes. Yes, ambassadors are out there giving speeches and uh, cutting ribbons and uh, speaking to the public and so forth. And most of our cadre at some point or another is out there doing public uh, diplomacy themselves. But the large part of our work is done behind the curtain, behind uh, in, in, a, in a place that the public can't see. And we don't articulate, as we we discussed earlier, we don't always articulate ourselves what it is we're doing or why we're doing it. But I find one of the most enduring misapprehensions about those who serve in the ranks of the Foreign Service overseas is that, and I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote, is that we are most concerned with our own security. In fact, that falls down the, the rank of priorities not as chief of mission, of course, that was that had to be a number one priority for me. But when my folks were doing their job, the, the first thing they were asking themselves was not, you know, am I safe? Can I go and do this in a safe place? Uh, I would say that about Basra, for instance. But rather, we had a job to get done. So at a, at a certain point in the second term of the Obama administration, and this was after Benghazi and in the, it was probably two full years after Benghazi, but of course, Benghazi was the gift that just kept on giving in this town. And we had a an offsite of senior officers. And I remember talking to the Assistant Secretary for Near East Affairs, NEA, the NEA Bureau, the Middle East Bureau in state. And she had been at this offsite with a senior administration official whom we all thought well of. But he started off his remarks by saying, the president wants you to know that his number one priority for you, we, we share with you is your your folks' physical security overseas. And all of these senior officers said, sorry, that is not our number one priority. Our number one priority 
for the national interests, the national security interests of the United States. And we're going to try to keep ourselves safe. Benghazi happens. These things happen. And as you know, Michael, you go to the C Street lobby and you can see those plaques and see the difference in numbers from the West plaque to the East plaque. This is your memorial wall. These this officers, is our memorial officers wall. Officers who have died so in the line of duty. from the first consul general going to France in 1780, William Palfrey, lost at sea, to the last person on that plaque on the Western Wall. So that was 1780 to about 1972. And then you jump to the East Wall, and it is full up. So imagine you've got yeah. almost 200 years worth of names of people lost versus... 50, yeah. uh, less than 50 People don't years. understand that State Department officers put themselves at the same risk that military officers and intelligence officers do. We have to. Um, we have to to do the job. Yeah. And I remember the atmosphere on Benghazi um, in the aftermath of Benghazi when security became the the priority. And I remember, right. I remember at one principals committee meeting in the sit room, Secretary Clinton got so frustrated by the focus on security. She said, all right, I'll just bring everybody home. And we'll do diplomacy by Skype, and we'll see how effective that is. Right, right. And she was making the same point you are. Exactly. It, we, we have a job to, to get done. We, we take prudent risks. Sometimes we take imprudent risks, but we do it to get the job done. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters after a word from our sponsor. Do you hear that? That's an enemy drone being led out of U.S. airspace with a line of code. It's just one of the ways Raytheon cyber experts are helping customers stay ahead of cyber threats. Every day, we pave the way to mission success, training warfighters to succeed in the cyber domain, modernizing platforms through software innovation, protecting every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Okay, let's let's switch to the Middle East. Yes. Um, and let me start with a couple of general questions. And then, Barbara, get your sense on the key issues we're facing today. And the general questions are first, um, I would assume there is, in your view, no walking away from the Middle East by the United States. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, We have abiding interests there. We have abiding partnerships that are critical to our national security. And you can take the harder end of the stick to start with, which is, that poor region is in a very parlous state. The worse it's been for those of us who've been watching it, living it, working in it, working on it um, for decades, it's, it's, in a, it's in a terrible state for myriad reasons. And out of that terrible state has come waves of terrorism and terrorism that have touched our shores uh, more than once. We have the issues of nuclear proliferation. We have at the heart of the Middle East in the Arab heartland, a country, Syria, which is in dire straits and has produced waves of refugees. And is those refugees have, uh, have posed an extraordinary burden on neighboring states, again, who are uh, close to us, close partners of ours, Jordan, Lebanon. We have the issue of Iran, what to do about Iran. So I got out to Abu Dhabi in December 14, just as oil was really beginning a very prolonged sleigh ride, the price of oil. It had been about $114 per barrel the summer before. By the time I got there, it was skidding down 
south of 60. And over the next two years, uh, it dipped down to the 30s. Now, you had the shale revolution at the same time, and that produced a sort of a convulsion in some parts of the Middle East among the elites that said, well, the U.S. will no longer need us. It has its own sources of oil. Indeed, those those reservoirs could uh, surpass, those resources could surpass what Saudi Arabia has in the next couple of years. But the oil, of course, is, is part of a, a larger marketplace. We've seen just this week, in fact, today, the kind of fulminations out of Iranian military leaders that explicitly call into question the security of two critical trade choke points. Who but the U.S. is willing and able to assure international commerce? I see no one. Yeah. And our health, our economic health rests on that. So despite, despite our success in finding more oil, they remain a key supplier, a key determinant Absolutely. of price all the security risks associated with that, as you say, all the instability ultimately gets exported as terrorism or refugees. One of our key allies sits right in the heart of the Middle East, Israel. That's right. Right. There is no walking away. You can't. So maybe this is a really big picture question, but why do you think there is so much instability at the end of the day in that part of the world? Well, governance is a key factor. There's no question in my mind, but the models of governance in key places around the region, simply, they're sclerotic. They are unable to address the economic needs of the country. You know, as we know, revolutions so often start over bread and butter issues. We see that in Iran, actually, now, in the, the, the protests over water. You see that in Basra. So this is where the Arab Spring came from. Exactly. Right. A failure exactly. Of governance. Exactly. So governance is there. And because of its inability to manage the different models of government governance, not managing economic growth, producing economic growth. Uh, but the population is growing. You just have an, you know, an inevitable squeeze play there uh, going on. What about, so, the, what about the struggle between Iran and the Arab Gulf states? Does that play into this? instability? Well, I mean, look, how do you think about that? Two years ago, I know there was a lot of concern in Washington and and in Europe, uh, and I dare say in the Middle East, that the sort of tit for tat actions that went on between Saudi Arabia and Iran over a period of time, starting with the Nimr al-Nimr execution to which prominent Shia figure in Saudi Arabia, to which the Iranians responded with a pretty tried and true set of measures spontaneous protests that and, and sacking of Saudi diplomatic facilities. It led to a series of measures by the Saudis, Emiratis, and others. So there was a, a feeling of escalation, but I, I don't think that's the driver these days. I think you've got um, some organic issues that are unresolved in the region to which Iran provides an accelerant. The Iranians in my view, have not been the source of instability, but they have acted to accelerate and to deepen that instability. And, and Iraq's one good example of it. Obviously, Syria is. Well, what about Yemen. what about extremism? What do you what do you see as the fundamental source of jihadism in the region? Does it flow out of the governance, or does it come from someplace else? Uh, I mean, I think if um, 
If I had an answer to that, I would patent it and I would sell it. I think it's something we are all struggling to understand. Because, look, I, I started by looking at the allure that ISIS had for Western kids or young people and not necessarily just looking at disgruntled, alienated youth in the Paris suburbs, but 15-year-old girls taking their A-levels or 16-year-old girls taking their A-levels in London or prepping for their A-levels one day and the next day sneaking out in in the middle of the night to, to go to Syria. We had cases like that in the United States, folks who were radicalized online, who were Christian, converted not just to Islam, but went straight to the, you know, to this dark, dark place, um, this place that ISIS had established. So I have struggled very much to understand the explosive, this deep magnetic attraction that, uh, that ISIS in particular had for, I wouldn't say a generation of people, because uh, look, you've got a billion members of the faith around the world and, and the number who actually got up and decided to go fight and, and kill and so forth is tiny. Mm-hmm. But it is there is clearly still, as I say, a magnetic allure to this ideology. They have not entirely followed a playbook that we've seen before, but they have mastered technology in, in a way we've never seen before. And that in itself has enabled them to reach right into people's living rooms. So let's do, we have a few minutes left, so let's do a lightning round. Yes. Okay, let me just throw out a couple of issues and get your your reaction. The United States walking away from the nuclear deal with Iran. Good thing, bad thing, why? Bad thing. I will count myself as a supporter of the agreement with all of its flaws. And before we walk away from something, I would want to see that we had something really good in place, and we don't, we don't seem to have that. I've been watching very carefully what the administration has to say about where it's going on this Iran strategy. It's not what I would call yet a coherent strategy, or rather, if there is a strategy, it seems to be all focused on economic sanctions, and I don't think that's good enough. When you heard the Secretary of State give the speech at the Reagan Library, Mm -hmm. um, did you get the sense that the policy might be regime change? No, not so much. I think there there are folks certainly, let me put it this way, I think there are folks who imagine that regime change can be effectuated via the, the punishing set of economic sanctions that are coming, that it will, you do X and you will get Y. I question that. And folks who are far more expert in this matter question that as well. But even if you get regime change, the question is what kind of regime do you get the IRGC uh, muscling their way further into the sea? I think that's a possibility. Syria, how does this end, do you think? Well, we're seeing it end. We're seeing this phase of the civil war come to a crunching, crushing end in southwestern Syria. We will see the regime pivot to Idlib. The Iranians and Syrians have made lots of noise, and we've heard the Russians make noise about northeast Syria being ultimately the place where they want to clear the U.S. presence out. Uh, So we are seeing the end of it. What comes next? It's a stalemate at this point. It's a fragile and unstable piece of the grave overseen by Moscow and Tehran. Do you think the Obama administration should have done more in the early days? 
for the Syrian civil war? It should have done more or it should have done less, but it should have been clear about what it wanted out of Syria. I mean, as we've, all of us public servants know, the words that come out of a president's mouth matter to everyone. That is, when you say that you are putting down a red line, I yeah, a million people have said this before me, but when you put when you say that there is a red line, you best be prepared for someone to test you on that proposition. And and given the where the regime went and and as bolstered as it was by the Russians and the Iranians, it was just stood to reason that that red line would be tested. But I would go back further than that and say, you know, I I'm not a big proponent of regime change. My first tour in the foreign service taught me the delimitations of regime change, and we did not manufacture it. It it happened organically in Haiti, but nonetheless, it didn't produce what people expected it to produce. And we had seen Iraq and then Libya. Uh, But I think there was a huge amount of hubris that spring. Right, right. There was. Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Your assessment of him how he thinks about his country's future and his his ability to deliver on reform. I mean, I think it's, uh, I will, when I get to it, I'll probably punt on that last question. I think that is uh, very much, very, very unclear. But what do I think about him? He's, he's an agent of change. That is clear. He is at times a reckless agent of change. He and those who support him in the kingdom make the argument, which I can't, I, I can't discount. I, I have to credit with, some validity, that to make the kind of changes that the kingdom requires for its long-term stability, I mean the kingdom, not just the house of uh, Saud, he has to make big moves and make them rather rapidly. It's a system that, that has been closed and sclerotic is, is its middle name. And the kind of succession we'd seen previously was, with all due respect to past kings, one elderly king giving way to another elderly king. So he's a change agent. And we need him to be successful. We need him to be successful. All that said, I have been concerned all along that he heaps too many things on his plate, domestic and foreign, at one time, and that he would probably be best served, the kingdom would be best served, oranges would be best served if he focused on the domestic and get it right. Um, Israeli-Palestinian peace, important from just a humanitarian perspective or important geopolitically? Both. No question. Both. But the process is you such... Know, there are some people who question the second, right? There's some people who question whether we need a solution well, or whether we can go on like this. Yeah, I think, you know, it's... And that's why I asked. Yes. I, and I, I've heard that before. And I've heard it even from some in the region. But I, I think, you know, you have only to see the speed with which things can unravel between the, the two sides... And the way that leaps across the Jordan River, hits Jordan, leaps over to Egypt. And, and I'm talking about the street here, the so-called Arab street. Those issues still churn. And why? I mean, it's been decades of governments shaping their publics to think that way. So, like it or not, it does matter. Barbara, it's been great to have you on the show. Just one more question. If you had five minutes with the president and you could make one point about diplomacy or the Middle East or whatever you wanted, what would it be? 
Well, I will take Secretary Pompeo at his word that the president believes diplomacy matters and that the the people of the Department of State matter. So I will just take that off the table and say, uh, fine, I will take that at, at face at face value. I would go on to say, not only does the Middle East matter, but the Middle East starting with Syria matters. If the administration is focused on Iran as this overarching national security threat of the first order for the United States and, and beyond, but specifically for the United States, you cannot get at what Iran is doing in the region if you do not address it in Syria. You cannot address it in Syria by subcontracting this out to the Israelis to do bombing runs. They're acting in their defense, but that's not good enough. Dealing with Iran starts in Syria. We have got to have a more visibly engaged administration effort on Syria, on Iraq, on Yemen. These are places that matter in terms, again, of that disordering effect of the of the Middle East. The Iranians didn't start it, but boy, are they making it worse. Barbara, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Michael. That was Ambassador Barbara Leaf. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.